And so if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to our passage today. Exodus chapter 9, starting at verse 13. Okay? Uh, we've been in a mini seri- a series inside the series through the ten plagues. We're going to look at the seventh of the ten plagues. Exodus chapter 9, verse 13, the plague of hail. May God bless the reading of his holy and matchless word. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been seen in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore send, uh, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his servants and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Amen. The word of the Lord. Of all the plagues so far, this plague has the longest description yet. We've mentioned that as we move towards the final plague, that final tenth terrifying plague, each plague increases. So we started with blood, right? The water of the Nile turning into blood. And then we moved into frogs and gnats and flies. And everything is increasing in its intensity, increasing in its level of devastation and judgment. We went from frogs to boils, from water to hail. And although the plagues can feel redundant, although it feels repetitive as we read through and hear God's word, I mean, it feels like a cycle. God goes to Moses. Moses goes to Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't listen. God enacts the plague. Pharaoh says, I'm sorry, I'll let your people go. God Stops the plague. Pharaoh then changes his mind and doesn't let his people go. And it's rinse, wash, repeat. It seems like such a cycle over and over again. But here with this longer passage, with this longer description, Moses is telling us, slow down. Slow down. Drink deeply from God's word. Don't you see that the tension is building? The drama is heightening. And we should take notice. 
The title of today's message is The Storm of God. The Storm of God. And I want to ask three questions as we work our way through the text. First, I want to ask, why does God send the storm? Why does he send such a storm that not only kills men, animals, but also plants and trees? Why would he do this? Why would he send the storm? Second, how do we try to navigate our way out of the storm? Okay, How do we try to navigate our way out of the storm? And finally, where can we find refuge from the storm? Well, in the Bible... Storms, they serve as a a great metaphor for two things. They tend to be a metaphor for two things. First, it's God's judgment, or second, it's God's testing, okay? Judgment or testing. Sometimes they represent both, and so think about Noah. Noah and the flood in Genesis. The flood represented God's judgment against humanity's corruption. Man's heart was continually set on evil, so God grieved. He regretted making man, and so he sent a flood in judgments. When the storms of God struck Job's life, it wasn't judgment. It wasn't because Job had done anything wrong. Instead, it was actually a test of faith. Satan said, Job only loves you. He only worships you because his life is so comfortable, because you have blessed him so much. God said, put my servant to the test. So the storms came into Job's life, and it was a test of his faith. For Jonah, it was actually both, judgment and testing. Jonah was running from God, running away from God, and so God sent a storm. And then to test him, he put Jonah in the belly of a fish to see whether or not Jonah would repent, whether or not Jonah would humble himself and obey God's call. Now, it's very important for us as we experience different kinds of storms, it could be a, a natural, a physical storm, a natural disaster that afflicts us in our lives. Or it could be a metaphorical storm. It could just be hardship, suffering, and affliction. We too ask, why? Why did this happen to me? God, why are you allowing this to happen to my family? And this is where we need to stop and think, is this because of sin? Is this God's judgment? Is this God disciplining me? As a holy father, or is this God testing me? Is God trying to build up in me perseverance, build up in my family faith and dependence, to loosen my dependence on this world, loosen my dependence on myself, my job, my gifts, my career, my abilities, and put more dependence on God? You need to think your way. You need to pray your way through that as you find yourself in the midst of a storm. But one thing remains constant behind every storm. Whether it's God's storm of judgment, whether it's his storm of testing, the constant is this, God is sovereign. And everything that he is doing, he does for his glory. Every storm, every trial, every affliction, everything that God does and allows to happen in our lives, it is under his sovereign command and for his divine glory. We see this clearly in our passage today. In verse 14, God commands Moses to tell Pharaoh, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself. And what he means by is not all 10 at once, right? What he means is the full force of my power, the full force of my judgment, I'm going to pour that upon you, Pharaoh, and on your servants, and on your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me 
in all the earth. He's doing this for his glory. In the Hebrew, it literally means, it literally reads, I will send all my plagues against your heart, Pharaoh. Okay, Against your heart. That's God's target. Pharaoh's hardened heart. He's not just going after his possessions. He's not just going after his power. He's not just going after his reputation. He's going after his hearts. Because that's what needs to change. That's what needs to change in Pharaoh. You see, Pharaoh had challenged God in Exodus chapter 5. Moses said, let my people go. Yahweh commands it. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I don't know him, and I will not. That's what Pharaoh said. And so the 10 plagues are God's response to Pharaoh's challenge. You see, church, God brought the plagues over Egypt, not just to deliver Israel from slavery. That was very important. Not simply to judge Pharaoh for his sin, not just to punish Pharaoh, but ultimately what's driving the 10 plagues is the revelation of God, the self-disclosure of God, the glory of God. He brought the greatest storm Egypt ever experienced in the history of their nation. Commentators tell us that at this point, Egypt had been a nation for 1,700 years. The greatest storm to ever come to Egypt. God afflicted them with so that he would be recognized as the true and living God. We see this even more deeply in the next verses. Verse 15, God says, For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. He he could have killed Pharaoh. He could have crushed Pharaoh. But for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You see, there's an amazing thing happening here. You see, God is able to, he's the great multitasker. I am a terrible multitasker. I've already shared that with you guys, right? I've already gave that illustration where I can't feed my baby and be on my phone at the same time. Uh, Either, yeah, one thing's gonna get weird. I'm gonna send a a wrong text or the, the milk's gonna leak out of my baby's mouth, right? But God can simultaneously, simultaneously, right, save and deliver his people. Punish Pharaoh, judge him for his sins and idolatry, and make himself known and establish his glory over all the nations. He does this. This is an amazing thing that God is telling us. Worship and missions, they are tied to his glory. Why are the plagues happening? So that his name, that God's name may be proclaimed in all the earth. These plagues over Egypt, they had global implications. The purpose was that the world would know that God is the true and living God. That every tribe and tongue would confess that God is true. History shows us that God's purposes were in fact accomplished. The Israelites, they sung of God's victory in Egypt by the plagues from generation to generation. If you read through the Psalms, they'll literally quote the great acts of God in the plagues. They'll sing to God as, as the God of the storm, the God who brought hail upon our enemies. They celebrated that from generation to generation. Foreign nations, 
okay? Foreign nations heard about what happened to Egypt, okay? So it wasn't just Israel and the Hebrews boasting about what happened. There was word of mouth going from city to city, country to country, people to people. In Joshua and in 1 Samuel, there are these people groups called the Gibeonites and the Philistines. And they heard of what God did to Egypt. And they were in fear. When they encountered the Hebrews, when they encountered Israel, their first thought was, oh my gosh, we've heard about the God of Israel. How mighty he is. How he crushed Pharaoh. How he punished Egypt. You see the plagues, they made God famous. They made God famous. Even today, think of the countless people who hear the story of the Exodus. The countless people who are called to place their faith in God as their redeemer and as their deliverer through this great story in the Exodus. Brothers and sisters, this is why God sends storms. He doesn't do it just out of spite to punish. He doesn't do this out of vanity just to test our loyalty. Ultimately, he does everything for the glory of his name, for the glory of his name, that we would know him, that we would fear him, that we would worship him. How does this connect to us? Okay. Why is this relevant or important to us? And the answer is this. Because in the glory of God, there is for us ultimate good. Okay. Ultimate good. So if you're sitting here today and you're like, oh, glory, 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 but what I will need is a girlfriend. Right? Or glory, glory, I get it, but what I need is a house. I'm tired of renting and pouring money into a rental. I, I need a house, God. Give me a house and I will worship you. Right? Get me a job and I will worship you. If you are sitting here today and you want to exchange the glory of God for a temporary earthly treasure and a gift, you don't understand the glory of God. You don't understand what a treasure he is. You you haven't seen the beauty of God. You haven't tasted the goodness of God. You haven't experienced the peace of God. Your heart hasn't been filled with the love of God. No, in the glory of God is our ultimate good. John Piper, one of the great theologians who writes and lives for the glory of God's name, he writes this. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to seeing it and savoring it as our highest treasure. Behold your God is the most gracious command and best gift of the gospel. Just think about this. If God is real, if God is truly all that he declares to be in his scriptures, as almighty, as transcendent, as righteous, as perfect, as holy, as merciful, kind, gracious, loving. I mean, just think about that. If that God is for you, truly, who can be against you? If you have that kind of God, the God of the Bible, as your Father in heaven, truly, what else do you need? What else could you need? Could anything be greater and better than him and his presence and his glory? Truly, to see God, to know God, to experience God, that is the greatest gift of the gospel. But what do we do? when we experience storms. Rather than thinking, God, show me how this will bring you glory. 
allow this experience, allow this suffering, allow this trial to give you glory. What we do is we're like, I got to get out of the storm. I got to get out of the storm. We try to navigate our way out of the storm with our wisdom, with our might, with our abilities. And this is exactly what Pharaoh does. As the story continues, Moses raises his staff and the most terrible hailstorm falls upon Egypt. Hail, thunder, just fire. Theologians interpret that simply as lightning, bolts of lightning firing down from the sky like never before. God mercifully warned Pharaoh to seek shelter. He says, this is going to happen. A storm is going to come and it will be devastating. So take all of your servants, take your livestock, seek shelter. Right? And for the first time, this plague leads to death. You see, all of the other plagues were greatly inconvenient. I mean, like frogs just chirping and, and, and going. Just imagine that. Like you wake up in the morning and frogs are in your bed. It's like gross, right? It's terrible. Gnats, flies, boils, right? But, but as far as we know, none of the previous six plagues resulted in death. No Egyptians died. But with the seventh plague, servants died. Whoever was outside, whoever didn't regard the word of the Lord, Hail fell upon them and they died. Livestock died. Plants died. Only the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were, was spared. And Pharaoh sees death. He sees the devastation. And he responds to God with another first in all of the plagues. It looks like he repents. It looks like he repents of his sin. Look with me at verse 27. Just shocking words. Then Pharaoh sent... And called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right. And I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. And you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail. So that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not fear God. I know that you do not fear the Lord God. What's so shocking about Pharaoh's words is that Pharaoh considered himself to be a God. Okay? Egypt worshipped Pharaoh as a deity, as God. And so he was considered to be perfect. When visitors would greet him, come into his courts, you know what they had to do? It's kind of like Koreans. You have to chow Right? Like, I used to have to do Every time I saw my grandparents, dad would be like, I'm like, oh, you know, right? They would do that to Pharaoh. And, and, and the phrase was literally, kiss the dirt. Kiss the dirt. They would bow prostrate before Pharaoh and kiss the dirt. Because Pharaoh was considered to be God. Perfect. Righteous. Powerful. Possibly for the first time ever in Pharaoh's reign, he confessed that he had sinned, that he was actually wrong about something, that his people were in the wrong. It looked like the storm of God had softened Pharaoh's heart. If Moses would just plead with God, if Moses would, would, would get God to make the storm go away, if God would just relent, I will let Israel go. Not even just go on a temporary retreat to worship in the wilderness. No, no, they can just leave. That's how 
broken, it seemed, that Pharaoh was. Moses saw right through Pharaoh. He saw right through Pharaoh's heart and that Pharaoh's words were insincere and filled with false repentance. Moses responded, you know what? The storm is going to cease. I will pray, but not for your sake, but for God's glory. But I know that you, you don't really fear the Lord. You're just saying this to get out of trouble. You're just saying this because you are trying to navigate your way out of the storm. And so if I have to say, oh, I have sinned, I will do it. If I have to say sorry, I will do it. If I have to buy something, if I have to sacrifice something, whatever it takes, I will. It sounds like a husband in trouble with his wife, right? That's what Pharaoh was doing. But his words, his actions, everything here shows marks of false repentance. False repentance. What does that mean? What does false repentance look like? First, we see this. Pharaoh didn't confess his sins to God. He confessed his sins to Moses. He told Moses, I was wrong. This time I sinned, right? You guys are right. I was wrong. Apologize. What does King David say in the Psalms? He says, to you and only you have I sinned. The biggest offense The one who we've we've transgressed against the most, it's not our neighbor. It's to God before a holy and righteous God. And and Pharaoh does not confess his sins to God. He thinks, if I just tell Moses, that's enough. And I think some of us do that. If I just confess my sins to my small group, to my accountability partner, that that is enough. And that's me being authentic, right? That's that's me being contrite. I, I should receive forgiveness, brothers and sisters. That's not enough. If you want to experience and practice biblical repentance, we must confess our sins before the one we have truly offended. We confess to God. The second mark of false repentance is this. Pharaoh's confession was actually incomplete. Incomplete. He's actually couching all of his words. He should have said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Right? Have mercy on me, a sinner. But what does he say? He says, this time I have sinned. If I was Moses, I would have said, what about the other six times, the previous times? You, you said something and you changed your mind. If I was Moses, I would have said, what about that time you decreed that all the Hebrew boys be drowned in the Nile? Was that not sin? What about that time that you challenged the reality of God, the authority of God? Were not those words sin? Pharaoh, don't you understand that your problem is not just a sin? It's that you are a sinner. You are a sinner, that you are corrupt and fallen. Finally, Pharaoh did not turn away from his sin. And this this change, this change of direction, this change of action is so important for us to practice biblical, authentic repentance. Otherwise, it's lip service. Pharaoh said that he was a sinner. He said that God was right. You see, what happened was Pharaoh feared the plagues, but he didn't fear God. He feared the plagues, but he didn't fear God. He was trying to use God. He was trying to be religious, to navigate his way out of the storm. He showed remorse, but no repentance. Have you guys ever done that? You feel sorry, right? But there's not actual repentance, this willingness this desire to change and live rightly before God and your neighbor. Phil Riken, he writes this. There is a difference between remorse and repentance. Remorse is the sadness that comes from suffering God's judgment. Remorse is useful 
when it helps persuade sinners to repent. However, many people are filled with remorse for what is happening to them without ever truly repenting of their sins. Let me say that again. There's a lot of people who feel bad for what they do, but not many truly repent. Not, true, not many truly confess. Not many truly cast themselves wholly upon the mercy and grace of God. Not many truly are willing to turn away from that sin, turn away from that idolatry. We just want us to, we just want God to make us feel less guilty, feel better about making the mistakes that we have made. Um, I think I told this illustration about four years ago, maybe my first year uh, here at All Nations. But uh, as a freshman at USC, um, I, I, you know, I was meeting friends, trying to make friends. And uh, so I found like a campus ministry and, and dorm buddies and all that stuff. But another way I made friends was uh, through sports. And so we, we, uh, the soccer players, you know, we're kind of dorky. We find each other. And so the soccer players, we, we found each other. And we were always looking for places to play soccer. And if you've ever been on the USC campus, it's not like Irvine. It's not like Riverside or San Diego where there's tons of grass everywhere. It's like, you know, we're in South Central. And so there's not very many places to play soccer. The best place to play was uh, on the main field uh, where the track and field meets, right? And so uh, my friends and I were like, oh, let's play some soccer. And we went, and they had just laid down brand new sod, okay? Uh, today it's AstroTurf, right? That's 20 years ago. Um, but brand new sod, and if you've ever, you know, like laid sod, you have to let it kind of settle, let the roots go deep. And so there was a barrier. It said, do not enter under construction, now, the question is, is that going to stop a bunch of 18-year-olds who feel entitled and feel like they can get away with everything? The answer is no, right? We just like went under. We start playing soccer. We're loving it, right? We feel like we're like Premier League. This is perfect grass. Nobody's run on it before. We're just like sliding and playing and loving it. And then the athletic, dir- the athletic director at the time, Mike Garrett, okay? uh, any old school like USC football guys, they know Heisman Trophy winning kind of corrupt athletically, (laughs) like, yeah, USC, big fall, big fall. But anyways, at the time, Mike Garrett comes down from the athletic office because the athletic, uh, the the main office that overlooks the field, he came down onto the field and he yells at us. He goes, hey, guys, come here. All right, and we walk over. He's this big, powerful man. And he says, you guys, can you read? We're like, yes. What does the sign say? Closed under construction, and you know we're we're all just like fresh, you know, like like hands crossed, eyes looking down, and and um, I was the first to speak up. I said, "I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry," and he looked at me and says, "You're not sorry, you're sorry you got caught," and I was like, "You're right, <laughs> so right," because if he had if he had never confronted me. If he never made me feel guilty, if he never called me out, my friends, we would have played soccer, and then we would have gone to the cafeteria, eaten some, and then if we wanted to play again, we would have went right back out under the rope to play soccer. We, we didn't care about breaking the rules. We just felt bad because we were called out. We were yelled at. We got in trouble. by Mike Garrett, Heisman Trophy winning <laughs> athletic director at USC. Brothers and sisters, as you stand before a holy God. As Pastor DC leads us in our time of confession of sin and assurance of pardon, is it repentance or is it remorse? Is it repentance or is it remorse? Where 
can we find refuge then from the storm? If it shouldn't be by our own navigation, if we shouldn't just try to play the religious game and say the right words to make ourselves feel better, where do we find refuge and protection from the storm of God? The answer is that only God can offer protection. Only God can offer refuge. You see, the storm ceases only by the will and word of God. And this is something we have to understand. That all things, all of creation, every moment and every situation, it's under the sovereign hand of God. And what that also means is then it's not under our control. It's not under our power. We can't get ourselves out of trouble, out of these storms. We are at the mercy of God and our only refuge is by the grace of God. Here's the reality though. This is uncomfortable for many of us. It's easy to nod to say, yes, I understand God is sovereign. God is our only refuge. But then when we really kind of unpack it, when we really rest in it and think about it, that means we have to wait. That means we have to be patient. That means we have to be long-suffering, allowing the storm to, to be over us and around us and even sometimes within us. We have to learn to surrender, right? Surrender. But these things are foreign. They're difficult. We're not comfortable relinquishing control. We're not comfortable relinquishing the ability to save ourselves, to save our family, to save our friends. We're achievers. We're workers. We're problem solvers, right? Especially brothers, right? We want to solve problems. You guys should have seen it, man. Um, uh, last week, we had our first kind of dry run. Uh, and, and, and so we were doing a dress rehearsal, practicing, like, rolling out the carpets and setting up the chairs. And uh, on our setup crew, we've got uh, seven brothers and one sister. Seven brothers and one sister. And it's a lot of physical labor. But, man, these guys were flexing hard. I mean, they were really trying to achieve. There was, there was testosterone and machismo. Our sister was just playing it cool and doing what she did. But the, the guys, they were, like, trying to carry more chairs than the next guy, Right? Run, roll out the carpet a little. And I was like, guys, you're going to hurt yourself. Take it easy. It's like work together, right? But brothers, we, we have this problem within us. We want to achieve. We want to prove ourselves, right? We want to fix problems. But God says, surrender, trust, wait, endure, have faith. When it comes to the storm of God, there is no refuge in ourselves. There's no re refuge in your abilities and gifts. There's no refuge in this world. Our only refuge is in Christ and the cross. And just as God brought the storm as a sign of judgment over Pharaoh, brothers and sisters, another great storm is surely coming. You guys know I don't preach out of Revelation all the time and, and I don't preach doom and gloom. Right? I don't say like turn or burn. Right? There's, there's guys, the, you guys can find those kind of preachers on Hollywood Boulevard or at the Rose Bowl. That is not my MO. But the word of God is true. And judgment is coming. It is surely coming. Just as surely as it happened thousands of years ago in Egypt, it will surely come when we do not know. Revelation 16 
describes the seventh bowl of God's wrath. God's wrath upon this world in sin. God's wrath upon idolaters and rebels. And this seventh bowl is described as a great storm, a great earthquake that comes upon the earth. Cities and nations fall. And John tells us that he sees great hailstones coming from the sky, 100 pounds each, crashing down on humanity is a sign and symbol of God's judgment. And the people were so distressed, so angry. John says the people cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Judgment is coming. God's plagues will come again. You see, Exodus and the plagues, they're not just a description of God's work in the past. It's not just something God has done in the past. It's actually a foreshadowing of things that will come in the future. Just as God judged through the plagues in the past, he will judge on that final day. But the good news of the gospel is this. Just as God spared his people, just as he spared them in the land of Goshen, just as he delivered his people from the yoke of Pharaoh, As they parted through the Red Sea, God will spare us from his wrath. He will spare us from judgment by the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Okay, let me say that one more time. Just as surely as God judged and will judge, surely God has saved in the past and will save again. He is a delivering God. He's a redeeming God. He's a merciful God. Brothers and sisters, he has done this through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. God laid all of his judgment upon his son as Jesus died on the cross. And what that means for us is that Jesus takes our place. He takes your place. He drinks the wrath of God for you so that you and I would be spared. There is refuge. There is refuge in the cross. Imagine what it must have been like to be in Egypt during the great storm. I mean, just think about that. Everywhere, hail is falling. People are dying. Trees are being crushed. And in this small, little province of Goshen, there's sunlight. There's no hail. There's peace. There's life. There's refuge. The Egyptians must have thought, I need to get there. I need to get to Goshen. I need to get to Goshen. Did you know, uh, we're, we're gonna go over this at the end of, of this kind of series. Moses tells us that when finally, when finally Pharaoh relents and lets Israel go, it wasn't just Israel who crossed the Red Sea and entered into the wilderness. There were Egyptians who went with them. There were Egyptians who said, now I know. Now I know that Yahweh is the true and living God. This is the heart of God. He's not just a God who's angry and out to judge. He's not a God who's out to punish. He is a God who wants to make himself known to you. He's a God who wants to be your refuge and save you. Would you believe in him? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for 
your word to us today. God, we remember that you are almighty, that you are holy, and there is none like you. Forgive us. Forgive us for often we forget. In, your mind, in our minds, in our hearts, we have made you so small. We have tried to control you, manipulate you, use you for our own preferences, for our own gains. For that, O oh Lord, have mercy on us. God, I pray that you would continue to speak to us, that you would continue to reveal yourself to us, and that you would establish yourself as our God and as our King. May we respond to your truth with faith. May we respond with repentance. May we respond with worship. There is none like you. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray.